Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Robert B. Bielman is a professor emeritus food science. Part of the, he's the director also for uh, of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health. So we're going to talk about some of his uh, you know, fieldwork and uh, research, etc. So, Robert, thank you for coming. Sure. Thanks for being here. If you would, tell me a bit about, uh, you know, what did you do as a professor? What was your research about? And then we can talk about present day, what you're working on. Sure. Well, I'm a professor emeritus at Penn State University in the Food Science Department, which is part of the College of Agricultural Sciences. I retired just about 12 years ago now, but I still am keeping a modest research program going, mainly through collaborations because I don't have a lab of my own anymore. I still have my office on campus, but uh, I don't have the lab. So uh, I have collaborations with uh, a scientist that's here at Penn State that's been retired longer than me, but he still has his own lab, and a professor of public health science at our medical school, Penn State Medical School, which is in Hershey. And I have some collaborations with the folks at the Rodale Institute and some with the uh, Alzheimer's Research Group at the uh, Vanderbilt Medical School. So anyway, I started at Penn State back in 1970, and I uh, had just graduated uh, with a PhD from Ohio State University, and they actually hired me to do wine research at that time, because I had done wine research in my graduate work, and um, they were just wanting to start a wine research program at Penn State back in uh, 1970. And I was actually hired by the horticulture department because they didn't have food science at that time. They did st- form that in 1975, but uh, I remember my uh, boss came to see me and he says, you know, Bob, I, d- I know you, we told you you're, we want you to work on uh, wine research, but we're not sure that's going to work out. You know, it's a brand new fledgling industry and we have a, a very strong ongoing research mushroom industry in Pennsylvania and uh, they need some help. And I'd like you to spend half your research time on, on mushrooms which uh, kind of threw me because I didn't know anything about them. But I'm glad I did because, uh, you know, about halfway through my career, the wine research thing didn't pan out for me anyway. But the mushroom research uh, gained more and more momentum. And uh, it was uh, what I spent the second half of my career working on. All right. So what kind? I don't don't think I'm getting everything you're saying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The the weather is very bad here. It may be interfering. Um, (laughs) What did you? What were some of the most important discoveries you made about mushrooms? 
Well, back in the 70s, when I started, first of all, Pennsylvania grew about 75 to 80% of the mushrooms in the United States. And they were about 80% of them were canned. And uh, so early on, I was working on canning technology, mainly around trying to prevent shrinkage. You know, you cook mushrooms in a skillet, you see they, they just lose weight and size and everything very quickly because there's a lot of water. And I was able to use science that was known about aging of meat to keep uh, aged meat it was juicier, maintained the moisture. And so I was able to, to uh, come up with some really important me methods to help them with that. And then the fresh market started to gain predominance. In fact, now it's just the other way around. About 80% are grown fresh. And so I switched my program over to looking at ways of extending the shelf life of, uh, of fresh mushrooms because they're very, very perishable. And then about 20 years ago, I got interested in looking into the nutritional medicinal properties of mushrooms. And I spent a lot, you know, the last 10 or 15 years of my active career that, and then ever since I graduated or ever since I uh, retired, I've, uh, I've kept onto that. And uh, I guess with that, we did, uh, we developed a vitamin D enrichment process and patented it using pulsed UV light. And there's two companies now that are, that are doing licensing that. But, uh, and of course, this all, the nutritional thing all started out with an interest in selenium. This is back when there was a study done, had shown that as a big, a big uh, con a clinical study that was done that shown people that uh, took a selenium tablet every day versus a placebo had a 50% lower cancer rate. Oh, wow. And that gained a lot of, uh, so we began to look at uh, the potential for selenium in mushrooms because they'll pick up you know, just about anything that they're, you know, any uh, metal that they're pr present in their uh, substrate. So we did a lot of work on that and showed that you could add selenium to the compost at any level you needed to get almost any level in the mushrooms. One thing we found is that most of this work's been done with button mushrooms and predominantly the white button mushroom earlier on, because that was mostly what was grown. Uh, are mushrooms uh, normally known for producing selenium or I guess in well, Brazil nuts, they're there, but what about mushrooms? Well, if you look back in the literature, there was a few studies that showed that they did, mostly in Eastern Europe and whatever. And um, so we found that depending on where the mushrooms were grown commercially, the selenium level naturally without adding any was uh, very different from one location to the other. And it was all based on the selenium in the soil. And for example, in the East, the selenium levels in the soil here is are fairly low. And on the West Coast, they're considerably higher. And then in the Midwest, especially in the wheat belt and whatever, they're, they're the highest. So we found that normal mushrooms grown here in the East would have about enough selenium to barely make them a good source, meaning that it had 10% of the recommended daily allowance in a serving, which is three ounces. Where in California, and out in the far west, they would have almost twice that. And in the Midwest, even more, because it was based on the fact that uh, they used the straw straw uh, from wheat, wheat straw, as the main ingredient in the compost. And depending upon where the wheat was grown, and they usually get it locally, that straw had more selenium when it was grown in a higher selenium soil, like in the Midwest, and the least in the east. So we developed methods of enriching them so you could get almost any level that you wanted. And then we got interested in 
vitamin D. And at that time, there was a lot of uh, a lot of interest uh, in, when we first got involved in in vitamin D because it was discovered that it has a lot more uses in the body than just bone health. For example, it has a lot to do with the uh, immune system, other uh, other diseases, and Actually, a, a, a former student of mine that was in Taiwan had shown that you could expose mushrooms to UV light and you could get higher levels because most mushrooms are grown in the dark, especially the, you know, the white button mushroom. They don't need any light, so they don't give them any light because it costs money. And they only right. put light in the rooms when they're harvesting them. And uh, the way mushrooms produce vitamin D is similar to the way we do uh, in, our, in our bodies. We have cholesterol in our membranes. And if we're out in the sun and there's UV light present, it strikes the cholesterol and converts it to vitamin D3. While mushrooms have a similar compound in their membranes called ergosterol instead of cholesterol, ergosterol. And if, you, if they're exposed to UV light, they'll produce a very similar form of vitamin D, slightly different, but they call it vitamin D2. Interestingly enough, if you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed as being vitamin D deficient, and they write a prescription for you, that will be vitamin D2 because it was originally produced from yeast, which again is a fungus and has the ergosterol in your membranes. But of course, in your diet, most of the vitamin D that you get is, is vitamin D3. Uh, but mushrooms are the only non-animal source, uh, except for yeast, that uh, can produce vitamin D when they're exposed to light. So uh, we developed a a method that would uh, make it very predictable and reliable to produce about any level you wanted using this pulsed UV light technology, because you have to expose them to 30 minutes to regular sunlight or a regular light you, a UV light you might have. And that's not really feasible commercially to do it that way. So, so what, what's the, uh, the benefits of mushrooms? It sounds like is that they can aggregate quickly pretty high levels of certain compounds you want them to produce, like D3 and selenium. Is that right? Right. But you have to, you know, you have to uh, mani manipulate the, either the way they're grown or, or uh, how they're treated post-harvest. In the case of the uh, selenium, you have to put it in the compost or you could, we did originally put it in the irrigation water, but that wasn't, uh, wasn't really very uh, easy for the growers. So however you can get uh Reasonable levels naturally, especially if you're in the Midwest. But if you want higher levels, you have to, you know, add some to the compost. And are there um are there companion plants that would you know cause the mushrooms to grow a lot more or produce a lot more of a certain compound? Well, not that I know of. Are you speaking of like in the wild? Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent, plus shipping and handling, at GeniusPollen.com. Yeah, well, if we if we find an instance of that in the wild, maybe we could also do that in a you know greenhouse environment, let's say, or a mushroom growing environment. Yeah. I guess, I would guess mushrooms are just grown alone, but I wonder if anyone's explored having any uh, companion plants to you know to change what they produce, the levels of it, et cetera. Yeah. Well, now that you mention that, 
I have come into contact with a company in Wisconsin, a small company that is has a, they actually make mushroom materials for home growers and that kind of thing. And uh, they've developed a process of growing wine cap mushrooms in, in uh, wood chips that are surrounding plants like vegetables. And they grow together at the same time. And, but it's, it's not the normal mushroom, uh, button mushroom. It's called a wine cap. It turns purple, but it's, it's edible. And so that's what they're doing. But they're doing that because they're trying to increase the amount of ergothionine that are that these vegetables take up. And uh, that kind of brings us to the discussion about ergothionine. Ergothionine is a, uh, it's actually a, an amino acid, not one of the normal ones you find in proteins, but it's a small molecule. And uh, it has both antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, which is not commonly found in one, in one compound. Uh, it was discovered back in uh, 1909 in ergot fungus, which was the uh, fungus that caused uh, uh, ergot disease on vegetable corn and and uh, some other vegetables, and of course it was a bad thing. But they found this compound called ergothionine. Not much was done about it until the fifties, nineteen fifties, when some scientists found that all animals had it in their blood, and they they wonder what's going on here. So ergothionine is found almost everywhere that there are fungi because fungi are the only organism and a few weird bacteria and everything that make this compound. And of course, mushrooms is a big ball of fungus. So initially we studied it in mushrooms because it had very high levels of it. And so, and we looked at various types of mushrooms and, and um, so on and so forth, tried some techniques of uh, increasing the amount, the way they were grown and things like that. But uh, it just uh, the problem that we came, that came to is that uh, mushrooms are not that highly consumed in the U.S. In fact, there's like five grams per day on average of mushrooms consumed in the United States. And it's really not enough consumption to really increase the ergothionine level in your blood. One thing I should mention is that ergothionine has a transporter protein that is produced by all mammals and it has a very high affinity for ergothionine. So as soon as you consume, for example, a human consumes it within a half an hour, it starts to appear in the, in the blood, in the red blood cells, because the red blood cells have the membrane, have this transporter and they just suck it right into the red blood cells and then distribute it around the body. Mm. What does it do in the body, by the way? Well, no one knows for exactly for sure. It probably has many functions. Being an antioxidant, there's all kinds of functions for antioxidants. There's all kinds of functions for anti-inflammatories. So what we'd like to call it now is a longevity vitamin because all of the chronic diseases of aging are either caused by oxidative stress or uh, inflammatory diseases. And here we have a molecule that does both. And a number of studies were done, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago where they started looking at how much is in the blood of various people and everything. And what they found, this is mostly work done over in Singapore, is that as people age, the amount of ergothionine they find in their blood decreases, which just happens a lot. Even the selenium levels in the blood decrease. A lot of things decrease in our blood as we age. But what they found was that people that have chronic diseases during their aging, like dementia, Parkinson's disease, frailty of different kinds, 
Alzheimer's disease, they tend to have people that, that, that are falling uh, to this kind of condition have about half the amount in their blood as people that are the same age, but that don't have these diseases. So this, people began to think, oh, this, uh, must, this must mean that the amount of ergothionine in the blood is protecting people from, from these diseases. But we don't know for sure if that's it or if having the disease itself causes the levels to be lower in the blood. So we don't know for sure. There's more and more evidence that, um, that it is an, uh, active in mitigating a lot of these chronic diseases of aging. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. For example, they're strongly in favor of a lack of it or a lack of quote unquote enough of it could lead to disease. If it only, you know, appeared in people that had certain diseases, then I think it would go the other way. But it seems to support that. Well, the other thing is there was a study done, uh, you know, about 10 years or so ago that where uh, some people estimated the amount of ergothionine consumed in the diet in five people from five different countries. And I was able to take their data and converted into milligrams per day of consumption for the average weight person. And it came out that the this was U.S., Finland, Ireland, France, and Italy. Those were the countries the study was done. And it showed that Americans consume on the average of 1.1 milligram per day, and the Italians 4.6, and the other countries in between. So I remember thinking to my, uh, in my office one day, I wonder if there's data that I can find for these various chronic diseases in these various countries. And I looked it up. I'm sure you can find that kind of thing. And I took data for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as two examples. And when I plotted the estimated ergo consumption in these countries versus the rate of uh, death rates caused by these diseases in these countries, I got this unbelievable sort of curve that showed that as you increase your consumption of ergothionine in the diet, the, you decrease the incidence of these diseases and the life expectancy increases. Again, the, we call this an association because we don't know whether this cause and effect or not, uh, or whether, you know, it, it could be just a coincidence. So, but it, it makes you think, you know, there might be something to this, especially when the fact that people that, uh, that have these diseases have lower levels in their blood than age matched healthy people. Then there was a a study done a couple of years ago in Sweden, where they call it a metabolomic study. They look at, they take blood from a bunch of people and they run it through these instruments that can analyze very quickly all, uh, uh, all of the metabolites in the blood, compounds that are in the blood. That's why they call it a metabolomic study. And uh, in Sweden, they, they did this with a, a large cohort of 
3,500 people, I think, and they, they were all supposedly consuming a healthy diet. So they wanted to see if there were any metabolites in there that pointed to having a positive effect on increasing lifespan and decreasing the mortality to some disease, like in this case, heart disease. So they, they measured 112 metabolites in these people. And lo and behold, the one that had the most positive association on decreasing coronary heart disease and increasing lifespan was ergothionine. And they weren't looking for it. They were shocked, you know, because most they didn't never heard of it. And a very similar study was done a couple of years later in Japan and found a very similar kind of thing with um, dementia and frailty, frailty being defined as lack of mobility and, you know, that kind of thing. Is anyone, uh, is there an ergothionine supplement that people can take or do they have to get it from eating, you know, mushrooms or other plants or vegetables? Well, there are some, uh, a few dietary supplements that are, if you look on the internet, you can find them. I don't know too much about them at this point. You know, it's kind of an unregulated thing. So after, after I realized that, uh, mushroom consumption, especially in the United States was not, was not going to overcome the problem because of the low consumption levels. I started to think, well, where else is it found, ergothionine? And there's just a very few studies that have been done, and uh, one one in Germany where they looked at all kinds of foods, and they have very low levels, basically, in almost everything, every food, but some of them below the level of detection. But the two highest were chicken livers and, and oat bran, except for mushrooms, and mushrooms was off the charts higher. And so I began to wonder... I was hypothesizing that this ergothionine in the, uh, in the food chain uh, must be coming from fungi in the soil. Uh, and um, because only, you know, the plants don't make it. So I remember uh, contacting a soil microbiologist here on campus and asking if uh, there was anything to my hypothesis that modern agricultural practices are, you know, messing with the fungi in the soil to the point where it might be affecting what's getting into the, the food chain. I remember she said, oh, yeah, I, I, we know that. So, but I couldn't find anyone that would help, that would collaborate with me to sort of, sort of prove this until we had uh, folks from the Rodale Institute come to our medical school and uh, asked to collaborate on research. I don't know if you know about Rodale, but they're the people that started the organic food movement back in the 1930s. And uh, Oh, okay. And they're still studying how how crops are grown, and and the uh, amount of nutrients and 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 things like that that are present in the food. And so, luckily, my colleague from the Hershey Med Center was in the meeting, and he said, "Well, you know, I've got this friend at the main campus that has this hypothesis about the fungi in the soil being affected." So we were able to start doing some studies with them, and we found that as you till the soil, the more you till it the less amount of ergothionine gets into the crops that are grown. And, and initially this was oats, chose oats because they, they do pick up a lot of it. And um, so it wasn't long after that that I ran into a colleague of mine on campus that was involved in a no-till experiment here at our uh, ag experiment station. We have big fields and whatever that are. And uh, he'd been been running this no-till experiment for that had been going on since 45 years. He wasn't involved with that one. And so we did a, a similar study where we had different levels of tillage. And we found that as you increase the amount of tillage, the ergothionine in the crops went down. And this was corn, soybeans, and oats. We published that paper uh, recently in a journal called Agronomy. Hmm. And 
we made the point that uh, ergothionine may be the compound that is best able to connect soil health and human health. There's in, in the ag community, there's a lot of interest in soil health, trying to improve the health of the soil. And part of that is to increase the microbes in the, in the, in the soil, microorganisms in the soil. And so in this case, this compound had to be coming from the soil, the fungi in the soil. So it, it's, it, it connects the two quite well. A quick question. This may be a sidebar. Do you know of anyone that's compared the nutrient composition or density of you know, vegetables grown under hydroponics versus in soil? This may tie in with the ergothionine stuff. I may not. I don't know. Right. Well, uh, I don't know directly, but I am nutrient density in general. I think that crops grown hydroponically compared to conventionally are going to have a lot less ergothionine because they try to keep any fung- any microorganisms out of the water they circulate with the nutrients. That's something that needs to be done. We need to we need to look into that because that seems to be a growing industry. You know, vertical farming and and uh, all this kind of thing. And uh, but I think without the soil and the microbes in the soil, the amount of ergothionine is going to be um, minimal. And uh, but I don't know about the other nutrients. But I I have to wonder. You know, in fact, nutrient density of foods is a is a uh, a big item now because conventional farming, which is what we've developed over the years, ever since mainly the war when nitrogen fertilizers were available and and, and all the machinery and everything, where they do they grow these uh, monocrops like corn and soybeans out in the in the mid- Midwest, and they just alternate corn and soybeans, and they plow the fields tremendously. They never use no-till there, and they add tons of nitrogen fertilization because you can almost grow anything in sand if you had enough nitrogen. These soils are definitely being degraded, those topsoils, because of uh, the erosion that occurs, because of the heavy tillage and everything. And the nitrogen fertilization tends to kill off the microbes in the soil. So, but now there's this trend, people are realizing, you know, that this is not sustainable. Industrial agriculture it's not really sustainable because the soil is being degraded, and eventually uh, it won't be you won't be able to grow crops on it. And so there's this movement towards what they call regenerative agriculture. And regenerative ag- agriculture involves usually three different cultural methods from conventional. And the first and foremost one is til- uh, is re- no tillage or very low tillage. The second one is to cover the soil at all times with a cover crop, so there's never bare soil. And the crop that's growing uh, adds nutrients back to the soil that you normally wouldn't have. And then rotating the crops more than just corn, soybeans, corn, soybeans, and rotating the types of, of cover crops and reducing the use and usage of, uh, of nitrogen, you know, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Uh, and of course, if you go the whole way on that, then you have, you, you can claim it to be organic if you do all those things and then totally eliminate chemicals. But the movement is towards regenerative agriculture because it's possible to do that, you know, in a, in a few years conversion. And it's been shown by a number of people that has, that have converted from the conventional method to regenerative that after four or five years, they're actually getting higher yields uh, than they got before. Because one of the things that people say, well, you can do that, but you, you know, you're going to sacrifice the yield. And that's where we got into trouble as I view it over is that uh, all of the so much of the research that was done, and I've been here 52 years now, and I've seen it in agriculture. Most of the research has has been focused on improving the yields, mm. 
and and possibly very at the uh, at the detriment of other things, yeah. and very little about what's in the in the crop. Some, but but uh, but but very little. And of course, the the uh, companies that support this with you know GMO seeds and all the chemicals and everything, you know, have uh, have pushed this, and it's become the norm in many ways. But if you go to the regenerative method, you have far fewer input costs. You don't have to plow, which reduces. You don't uh, you don't have to use fertilizer, which is a big cost, especially now. The cost of fertilizer is going out of sight, and you know you have less uh, energy needs because you're not running the tractors and everything, and the soil health builds up over the years rather than goes the other way. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm interested in now is uh, trying to look at what's affecting this ergothionine in our food supply. Because I have this sort of hypothesis that that we have been compromising the amount of ergothionine in, in our in our food supply over the years by the way we've been growing our food, and so it's. Uh, so what would you do? Is uh, grow mushrooms and and try to enable very high levels of ergothionine, and then maybe grind them up and put them in the soil as part of the uh, as part of fertilizer or other plants. Well. No, I don't think that. that's. I suppose that's possible. They do use compost in the in uh, to build the soils up, but the idea would be to just convert from, you know, the the sort of industrial agricultural method to the regenerative method would would have a, a big effect. The only one of the three hallmarks of three or four hallmarks of regenerative ag- that we've been regenerative agriculture that we've been able to study is the tillage. So we don't know what the other ones will do, and that's what we hope to do now is to look at cover cropping and uh, crop rotation and reduction of uh, synthetic fertilizers to see what all that has to do with increasing the ergo levels in the in the crops that are grown. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, the about good. adding mushrooms to the soil goes back to the this uh, project that I involved with a little bit with uh, Field and Forest, this company in Wisconsin, where they take these wood chips and they inoculate them with this fungus which produces the wine cap mushrooms. And then they use that to mulch around tomatoes and beans and stuff like that. And the mycelium of that fungus is going to grow down into the soil. And so we're looking into now whether that will increase the ergothionine level in the crops that are, that are grown on those soils, like tomatoes and beans and so on and so forth. That might be a possibility. But again, that would be very difficult to do on a large scale. Well, which, uh, which mushrooms seem to be the best at... Um you know, producing high levels of ergothionine. Yeah. Unfortunately, we found that the button mushrooms, which are the one, the, the type of, you know, the white and brown button mushrooms, which are the predominant ones that are grown commercially in the States, has the lowest levels. And then uh, mushrooms like uh, shiitake and oyster and maitake and so on. So some of these, what we call specialty mushrooms, almost all of them have about three times as much as the button mushroom. And then we found uh, in our studies that the mushroom that we found that has the most ergothionine is one called porcini, which is a name, it's a, for a mushroom that grows only in the wild. And they, uh, they eat a lot of them in Italy. And I think that's one of the reasons why they have uh, reduced levels of these chronic diseases because porcinis have about 20 times as much ergothionine as the uh, the button mushrooms, but the problem is they only grow wild. They have nobody's been able to figure out how to, how to cultivate them commercially. Well, what what is uh, like a recipe so far? I think you mentioned shining UV light 
for 30 minutes. I don't know how many times or what intervals, but you know, if, if a commercial grower is growing mushrooms in the dark, I guess it depends which kind, but what would be a protocol in which they could use to increase the ergothionine of the product? Well, when we first did this work with vitamin D, we did that. We, sh- we, we put lights in the rooms for periods of time. And um, uh, one of the things we discovered was that we, we, uh, if you do that to a certain degree, you turn white mushrooms brown. <laughs> it's like a suntan kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the brown button mushroom, which is sometimes called the cremini, is a different uh, type. It's not uh, the same as the white, uh, different strain. Uh, but if you want to grow the white button mushrooms, uh, it'd be difficult to use high levels of regular ultraviolet light without changing the color of them. And that's one of the advantages of using the pulsed light. It doesn't seem to do that. You can produce very high amounts of ergothionine in the mushrooms and not change their appearance at all. And what's interesting now is that the, the company that makes the, this machinery now has also shown that, uh, you can reduce the uh, microbial load on the uh, on the mushrooms and perhaps make make them uh, food safety improvement if there happen to be any strange uh, pathogenic bacteria that are around or bacteria that cause the uh, deterioration of the mushrooms, which isn't uh, doesn't cause any kind of disease, but it it causes the mushrooms to get spots on them and turn slimy and whatever. It's the main thing that reduces the shelf life is the growth of these bacteria on the surface of the mushroom. And so that you could be able to increase the shelf life as well, but I don't know that anyone has really studied that thoroughly yet at this point. Well, once you harvest mushrooms and the fruiting body is disconnected from the mycelium, is it not alive anymore? And what kind of degradation does it undergo now? What is it defenseless now in certain ways against bacteria? Well, you know, what's interesting is the mushroom continues to go through a lot of the physiology that it would if it was still attached to the for example, uh, as mushrooms mature, the stem grows taller, you know, and the cap opens up. Of course, in nature, this is all designed to spread the spores further, you know. But the mushroom grows up higher, the gills cap opens, the gills are exposed, that's where the spores are produced, and it spreads out uh, more. The mushroom continues to do that after harvest. Obviously, they, they're, not, they're, they're, they're not attached to the, to the ground anymore, but the stem t- continues to grow. And the cap opens up, and they get uh, tough. Normally, a, a fresh mushroom, you know, that's harvested, not, uh, immature, you know, in the tight button stage, has a very crisped uh, texture. You can bite into it; and it's crisp. Well, as it matures, it gets tougher, softer, and tougher, and uh, which is both of which are not desirable. So that's what limits the shelf life: is the change in the uh, and the physiology that way, but also the growth of the microbes on the surface, which probably could, probably happens more more often because even if the mushrooms don't open up and everything, the surface white surface gets spotty, and um, because these bacteria destroy the tissue in various levels or various locations on the on the surface of the of the cap, and the tissue starts turning brown, which they don't like. You know, it's not it's not desirable. Do, has anyone looked to see if um, mushrooms with very high ergothionine break down faster or slower or differently than ones that don't? Well, we we casually looked at that and um, we didn't see any anything like that. The specialty mushrooms, which I mentioned, we call them specialties. The non-button mushrooms generally have shelf lives that are that are very comparable to the button mushrooms. So, and they have more ergothionine. So, uh, it doesn't look like that. It helps 
preserve the shelf life of the uh, of the mushroom, even though ergothionine is an antioxidant, and a lot of the deterioration which occurs is caused by oxidation. But it doesn't look like it. Uh, mushrooms that are grown that have more ergothionine don't seem to have a better shelf life. Mm, okay. And I looked, uh, is there a chirality to ergothionine? I looked uh, online at that there was like L ergothionine and possibly R ergothionine. Well, there's L and D. And the natural, oh, and okay. yeah, the natural form is L. And uh, that's what present, present in mushrooms. And uh, there's really no D formed in nature that I know of. So, but there is, there are some people that are beginning to synthesize ergothionine, and I'm sure down the road there'll be some dietary supplements and whatever that uh, that are you're using pure synthetic ergothionine, uh, which it's possible some D could be formed there. But the one process that I'm aware of uh, that, that grows or that makes ergothionine synthetically over in France have figured out how to avoid that, so they're pure. Uh, synthetic ergothionine does not ha- not have any of the D form present. Um, so, and this company actually has a approval in Europe to use their synthetic ergothionine as a food additive. They had to go through uh, a special process in Europe, which is uh, actually harder in many ways to to get approval in Europe than here. Uh, and they've got it approved, and apparently they have uh, similar uh, approval self self affirmation grass status. They call it here in the United States, but I haven't seen any commercial use of it, partially because it's it's pretty expensive. It's probably too expensive uh, right now anyway, at the presently, to, to be using it as a food additive. But mm. some, of the, some of the clinical studies that are going on now with pure ergothionine, where they're feeding it to humans, this is basically occurring in Singapore. They're actually feeding, they're actually giving them pure ergothionine capsules rather than mushrooms or anything, because they want to know for sure what's causing the effect they see. That's one of the problems with, with doing clinical studies with a, with a food like mushrooms. You don't know exactly what's uh, causing it because you've got, you know, very complex composition. The one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I forgot to mention when we're talking about people that have certain diseases uh, that have low ergothionine levels in their blood. There was a study done in Brazil a number of years ago, and this was not with old people. Uh, this is with fairly young people that have sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia, which is uh, a disease of the red blood cells change shape. And, and uh, they, they're very difficult to pass through the, the, the small capillaries in the, you know, in the blood system and causes pain and whatever, causes lots of problems. Well, this study, they found that people with sickle cell disease had, again, half the level of ergothionine in their blood than age mass healthy people. And uh, the, the red blood cell does have a lot of ergothionine in it because that's where it initially gets into the, into the body. And uh, in fact, the, the red blood cells accumulate a very high level of it, much higher than you find almost anywhere else. And so it makes us think that reducing that amount in the red blood cells may be actually causing the sickle cell disease. Unfortunately, I've, I've tried to find a way to do some clinical studies on that here at our medical school or with others. And I, I haven't been able to find anyone that's interested in uh, following through to do that. However, I mentioned this to you because I've also tried to find somebody that has sickle cell disease that might want to try a dietary change, including 
more and more mushrooms in their diet and to see if that might mitigate their, their uh, symptoms. I'd love to be able to see, see that done. And it would have to be done, you know, not a, in a clinical phase because you have to get approvals and everything. But somebody that doesn't mind eating, let's say, three-ounce serving of button mushrooms every day or a one-ounce serving of these specialty mushrooms or more, uh, that would be the minimum, and see if it affects their their symptoms. I, I have this hunch that it will, uh, but I've never been able to test it. But maybe somebody hearing this podcast would, would have an interest in and giving that a try. Yeah, yeah. You know, it might be even a lot harder, but it'd be interesting if someone's going to get a transfusion and the person giving it uh, loads up on ergothionine, you know, by eating tons of these mushrooms for a month or something and then does the transfusion. I wonder how, you know, how the person would experience it differently, if it would help them a lot more, give them a boost. Yeah, well, that's an interesting idea. That would be a similar uh, approach. And uh, because as you're, you're obviously aware, that that's something that they have to do uh, many times people that suffer from this disease is to have transfusions every now and then. Yeah. It's a, it's a terrible disease really. Very. Yeah. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't haven't been able to find anybody that wants to take me up on that (laughs) challenge. Well, you know, hopefully like you said, someone listening will, and uh, yeah, we'll put this out there and, and see if anyone contacts you. So in the spirit of that, how can people contact you for, you know, to learn more about what you're working on, you know, maybe to tell them, tell you that they have sickle cell problems and they may want to try this, uh, you know, for any reason, how can people get in touch and find out more? Yeah. Well, the best thing would be to email me at rbb6 at psu.edu. That's, uh, that's R Robert Bruce B Bielman B the number six at psu.edu. I'd, uh, okay. I'm, I'm usually uh, very good at getting back to people that have an interest. Love to hear from Excellent. people. Well, Robert, thanks so much for all your knowledge and for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to geniuspollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GenusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.